for the reading of God's Word. Verse 7, down through verse number 11. Boy, I wanted to go past verse 11, but uh, in my study I got so much out of these verses that I had to cut it off uh, right there, and uh, that will be plenty for us to cover tonight. Verse 7 says, well, before we read, notice here, uh, after the first word, there is a parenthesis, and that parenthesis goes all the way down to the end of verse 11. And tonight, we're going to be doing a Bible study on the content of the parentheses here in Hebrews 3. And next week, we'll come back and we'll look at, uh, we'll look at that in context to the rest of the chapter. Verse 7, Wherefore, and the parentheses there, as the Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, in the day of temptation in the wilderness, When your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherein I was grieved with that generation, and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. The title of the Bible study this evening is What to Do in your day of temptation. What to do in your day of temptation. Let's pray. Lord, uh, as we go through these verses and then uh, go back into the Old Testament and look at this story, I pray, God, God, that you'd help us, that that we um, we would know how to handle those times when temptation comes along in our life. Those times we're faced with, do we, do we believe and trust you, even when it doesn't make sense? Or do we cower in fear and not trust you. And so, Lord, I pray we'd be a people of faith and that we'd find the rest that comes from the being a people of faith. May the passage make sense tonight. Everybody here tonight is going to need it a little bit different. So, Holy Ghost, you do what I can't. And you bring the truths home in these verses to each person as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, for those uh, uh, first time here on a Wednesday evening as we're going through Hebrews, let me just give you a quick recap, all right? Go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and you see who wrote the book. God. God wrote the book. Now, God wrote the whole Bible. Make no mistake about it. But this is a very, very important book because God is going to take the Old Testament and He's going to take the life of Jesus in the New Testament And he's going to blend them together and show how Jesus is better than all of the Old Testament heroes. To lay to rest any idea of holding on to Judaism as opposed to laying Judaism to rest and embracing Christianity or Christianity. Christianity. And so uh, God wants his name attached at the top of the book here, just so that it gives the book full validity, full credibility. Who wrote the book? Who is the human author who penned the book? It does not matter. God wanted us to know this is coming directly from me on a level that I don't want Paul's name attached. I don't want James or Peter or John's name attached. I want my name right there. 
to show you the credibility of it. And so God goes through and lays out all of the heroes of the Old Testament and, or in groups of heroes in the Old Testament. And one at a time, he shows how that Jesus, his son, is better than those heroes of the Old Testament. He begins the chapter by talking about the prophets. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. The prophets were God's messengers. And look at verse number 2. Here hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus is now the mode of communication to us today. And not only is he the mode of communication, he was around before the prophets ever even came around. He's better than the prophets. Then he moves on and talks about how he's better than the angels. Look at verse number four. Being made so much better than the angels. He's not just a little bit better. He's light years ahead of the angels. Now, what did the prophets... This is this, I've not made this point yet in the Bible study. So if you've been here for all of them, this will, be, uh, this will be a new point here. What did the prophets and the angels have in common? They were both messengers. To be an angel is to be a messenger. Be a prophet, you were a messenger. You did more than just that as a prophet, but that was one of your main jobs. Jesus came along, and what was he? He was the ultimate prophet. He was so far above the angels, so far exceeded the angels, that the message he communicated was a message of salvation. Now, the book is going to have a total of four admonitions in it. Four times where a truth is laid down, a foundation is laid, and then we get this strong challenge that's heaved at us and thrown at us, uh, or a warning and told, you better live this way. The very first admonition that comes out of the fact that Jesus is our messenger is, you better not neglect salvation. Look at chapter 2 with me and look at verse number 3. How shall we escape... If we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto, unto us by them that heard him. Now that Lord is speaking of Jesus there. You can look at the way the word Lord is spelled and, and know that if you know your Bible. Uh, it was spoken to us by the Lord and it continues to be spoken to us by them that heard him. Uh, who wrote the New Testament? Those that followed Jesus and heard Jesus. So, who is greater? Well, Jesus is greater. He's the greatest messenger. What was his message? Salvation comes by the grace provided by the person of Jesus and our faith in that. And you're not going to escape if you neglect that salvation. The rest of chapter 2 goes on and talks about the pecking order of, of us, humans, the devil, Jesus, and the angels, not in that order, but those four groups of people, the pecking order and all that works out and how Jesus redeems us. So we looked at the end of chapter 2, uh, uh, two Bible studies ago. Last week we got into chapter 3 and we looked at the first six verses. Let's read those again to recap here quickly. Look at chapter 3 with me and verse number 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, look to first who it's written to. It's written to those who are saved. This is the group of people that has not neglected so great salvation. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. Oh boy, you have gone after the Michael Jordan of the Judaism religion. You have gone and named the Wayne Gretzky 
of the Judaism religion. Wayne Gretzky, everybody here know who that is? Okay, all right. I, I think he transcends sports, doesn't he? Uh, who's he? He was the greatest hockey player ever to play, hands down. I'm not a hockey fan, but he just was. Okay, now the stats bear that out. Who, so who was Moses? Moses was like the superstar hero. He was the GOAT, greatest of all time. Uh, when it came to the Judaism religion. And so uh, the, the author of Hebrews is throwing it out, throwing Moses' name out there, and now he's going he's gonna to pit Jesus versus Moses. Jesus versus Moses. Look back at verse 3. For this man was counted worthy of more glory, speaking of Jesus, than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built the house hath more honor than the house. Yet Moses inherited a pretty dilapidated house in Israel, did he not? He came in and they were in slavery. The house had been broken down and in shambles in slavery. And Moses took them out of slavery up to Mount Sinai, got the law from God, wrote the first five books of the Bible, uh, appointed Aaron to be a priest, set up the Levitical priesthood, and had the tabernacle constructed, and marched them across the desert, watched as, and we'll look at this in a minute here, watched as they rejected God's plan and were condemned back into the desert for another 39 and a half years. There they were, wandering the desert. Moses is there the whole time. He's grooming the next generation to come up. When Moses dies and goes on to heaven, he, he has this generation ready to charge into Canaan land and take it. I would say Moses did a pretty good job of taking a broken down, dilapidated house and leaving a house that was refined, well-oiled, and ready to go. In fact, we know that that generation that would go in and take Canaan land would be Israel's greatest generation. That's where Moses left them. Moses built a good house. But Moses was not the master builder. Moses was just a hammer and the hand of the master builder. Look back at verse 4. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. You know who's greater than Moses? The person who made Moses. You know who made Moses? Jesus made Moses. Verse 5. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things uh, that were to be spoken after. Verse 6. But Christ, as a son over his own house, he not only built it, but he ruled over it. Whose house are we, speaking of the church, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope Firm into the end. Now, where we finished the Bible study last night, or rather last week, was with verse 6. And we talked about how that Christ plan for us in 2019 is the church. Is the church. I took you through several passages in the New Testament and showed you that this house being spoken of in verse 6 is the church. Now, you don't lose your salvation if you lose your confidence, but you'll probably quit going to church if you lose your confidence. You're not going to lose your salvation. You're not going to quit being part of the brethren if you uh, uh, if you stop rejoicing in that hope firmer to the end. But you're probably going to stop going to church. Or church will stop being a blessing to you if you stop rejoicing in the goodness 
of God and focusing in on his blessings. So again, verse six, but Christ as a son over his own house, Christ builds the church. He is the architect of the church. Whose house are we, the church? Remember, Hebrews was written in the church era. If we hold fast the confidence, that's of our salvation, and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. That brings us to verse number 7 and where we are now. We're going to enter in verse 7 into the second challenge, the second admonition. Jesus is greater than the angels and the prophets. That, that's why he is the messenger of salvation. Now that you're saved, now that you're saved, let me give you an admonition of what you better do if you want to live in the land of rest. If you want to live in the land of peace, where there is no strife in your heart, if you want to live in the Canaan land of the Christian life. All right. So we're going to uh, up against that background or rather underneath that foundation. Let's look at verse number seven. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness. Let me give you three thoughts this evening. I'd encourage you to take the notes on the back of your prayer bulletin there. Three thoughts this evening about this idea of what to do in that day of temptation. Because we're all going to have that day. Let's look at this closely. Number one, notice the plea of God's Spirit. The plea of God's Spirit. Now, this is a Bible study. I would encourage you to take good notes so that you get a lot out of the Scriptures this evening. All right? Look back at verse number 7. The plea of God's Spirit. Who is God's Spirit? Well, that's the Holy Ghost. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, notice the urgency, today. And you keep finding those two words, today, split up in the Old English Bible. That's our modern word for today. Today, if you you hear His voice. Look down at verse 13. But exhort one another daily, which is called Today, so the urgency here, we see the urgency that when the Holy Spirit calls, when the Holy Spirit speaks to you heart, you don't need to put it off and procrastinate. You need to respond today. It needs to be urgent. Uh, uh, so just so we're clear on this, the Holy Ghost does not speak to the heart of anyone who is lost except for the topic of salvation. Once you are saved... The Holy Spirit moves in and takes residence, and He begins to work on you about changes. All right? Look here. A letter A, notice. First, we need to hear His voice. Hear His voice. A man was, um, a man who is a, uh, naturist. Study nature. I don't know what you actually call them. I'll call them a naturist because I can't think of the other word. Naturalist? Someone who studies nature is called a naturalist, is that right? Okay, we'll go with that. If I'm wrong, then we're all wrong. Okay, Uh, a naturalist. Walking through a city park, it was somewhat wooded, and there was a, a concrete or rather asphalt path under their feet. And the man said to his buddy, he said, do you hear this bird? And do you hear this animal? And do you hear that animal? And his friend stopped and said, I can't hear what you hear. He said, how can you hear that? He said, well, my ear is trained to hear those sounds. He said, you know what? Everybody's ear is trained to hear sounds. The man reached in his pocket and got a handful of change and dropped it on the asphalt. And everyone within about 100 feet turned around and looked to see the change hit the asphalt. He said, their ear is trained to hear money. My ear is trained to hear these animals. Now... 
You have the Holy Ghost living inside of you, and generally He's not going to say, Hey, you big dummy, knock it off! It's not generally how He behaves. There's a whisper there. You know, you, you really shouldn't have said that. You know, you, you really shouldn't have went there. You know, you really shouldn't have put that in your body. You know, you, you really shouldn't be friends with that person. And, you know, you really should have encouraged that person along your path. Hey, you see that person over there? They're down and out on their luck. Why don't you go over and, and give them a word of encouragement? But you're not even going to hear that voice if you're not listening for that voice. Now, is he going to speak audibly? No. No, he's going to speak within your spirit if you're saved. And generally, you say, well, how do I know if it's the Holy Spirit's voice? If he's telling you something to do and your natural response is, I don't want to. That's probably the Holy Spirit's voice. You're sitting in the mechanic shop for the fourth hour, waiting for an hour, a job that's supposed to take 30 minutes, and they keep telling you they've taken your car back, but you still see it sitting around the side, and you're getting frustrated, and God brings somebody in that lobby, and they're sitting there, and He says, why don't you, uh, why don't you check on them, see how they're doing, maybe give them a gospel track, or uh, just, just give them a word of encouragement. And you go, uh-uh. I don't want to. Well, that's the Holy Spirit's voice. Do we listen to it? Do we hear His voice? Because it is speaking. Turn over to Psalm 81, verse 11. Psalm 81, 11. We're oftentimes way too busy in life, running from one place to the next, to even notice when the Spirit of God is speaking to us about something. But the Spirit of God has been speaking, especially to the Israelites, going all the way back into the Old Testament. Psalm 81 and verse number 11. If you haven't found it yet uh, and you're not close, just listen. It says, But my people would not hearken to my voice, and Israel would none of me. You know how we'd say that in modern English? Israel wanted nothing to do with me. They didn't want anything to do with me. Turn over to Jeremiah 35.15. Jeremiah 35.15. By the way, if you do a Bible study on the voice of God or hearing the voice of God or yet even neglecting the voice of God, boy, there are a lot of instances in the Old and New Testament of people who just flat out knew God was speaking to them and ignored it, chose not to listen to it. Jeremiah 35.15. I have sent also unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Return ye now every man from his evil way, and amend your doings, and go not after gods to serve them. And ye shall dwell in the land which I have given to you and to your fathers. But ye have not inclined your ears, nor hearkened unto me. You know what this is saying? It isn't that I'm not telling you what to do. It's that you're not listening. Turn over to Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 20. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, a verse many of us here would be familiar with. Speaking of the Spirit of God, uh, knocking on our heart's door, trying to communicate to us. For sake of time, I'll begin reading. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup or fellowship with him and he with me. God is wanting to speak to us. Are we listening? You know, you're not going to be able to win in the day of temptation 
if you're not even listening to the voice of God when He speaks to you. Letter B, notice, harden not your heart. Harden not your heart. So, the plea of God's Spirit, the Holy Ghost saith, hear His voice, harden not your heart. Go back to Hebrews chapter 3 and look at me in verse number 7. Whereas, the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the provocation. Harden not your heart. You know what it means to harden your heart? Hardening your heart means that you knew the truth, but you chose against the truth. You do that enough times and your heart becomes hard. How can somebody kill another person? It's years and years of a heart growing hard. How can somebody rip off embezzle tens of thousands of dollars from some old person. You know, my grandfather in his 80s, my grandmother had died, and he was an old stubborn man, and he refused to move out, and he had Alzheimer's. And women in their 20s would go over to this man who had dementia and Alzheimer's, and they would embezzle him out of thousands and thousands of dollars. How can you do that to somebody? You have a pretty hard heart. Do you know, it doesn't take an evil person to have a hard heart. Did you know that you can have the routine of going to work, going home, being married, having a a mediocre to maybe even a good marriage, going to church, having a routine, and still develop a calloused or a hard heart? I can remember being a Bible college student my junior, senior year, sitting on the pew in chapel, getting preached to every day, crossing my arms and saying, yeah, I've heard it all before. Oh, I didn't say it out loud, but I said that's, that was my hard attitude. Bless me if you can. I, you know, whatever. Whatever. You go to church long enough, you, you just get used to it, and uh, all of a sudden now your heart's hard. Um, if you take someone who uh, is used to eating out of a trash can or a dumpster, and you put them in a car, and you drive them over to Golden Corral and you pay their way, and you let them go up and eat whatever they want, their eyes light up like they're sitting in a king's palace. But you give me some rich snob who eats the finest of food uh, uh, every day of his life, and you take them to Golden Corral, and they're going to act like it's the dirtiest place they've ever been. Now, why is that? Somebody has been spoiled. Shame on us American Christians because we've been spoiled with the best preaching in the entire world. And if the preacher doesn't entertain us just right, or doesn't move us just right, we gripe and complain about style. Do you know there are people that that walk for hours just to sit in a church with a mediocre preacher in places in the world? We get in our climate-controlled car, and we complain the first five minutes because... We had to sweat a little bit while it got cold or hot, depending on the time of the year. We walk into church and the temperature's not just right in the church and we complain. We, we bicker and complain about things that are utterly ridiculous. You know why? Because we have a hard heart. We have a hard heart. Look at Proverbs chapter 29, verse number 1 with me.
Proverbs chapter 29, verse 1. This isn't just a problem that uh, we face. This goes way back into the beginning of uh, mankind. Proverbs 29, 1 was written probably 4,000 years ago. It says, He that being often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed in that without remedy. Boy, that's a pretty strong admonition against having a hard heart. One more. Turn to Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 5. I'm, I'm turning the wrong way in my Bible here. Romans 2 and verse number 5. Now, to, to give you the background on Romans 2, Romans chapter 1 is the chapter where God uh, uses Paul to just lay bare the sin of homosexuality and how that it's a wicked, evil sin. But then God turns around through the hand of Paul and tells folks, hey, that doesn't give you a right to go and hammer people over the head and be a pious, judgmental jerk. Romans 2.1 says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest dost the same things. So uh, be careful about that. Look down with me at verse number 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. We've got to guard against this uh, uh, impenitent and hardness of heart that can very easily bite all of us. And so, um, uh, how do you win in the day of temptation? Well, you need to hear the voice of God. And when you hear it, you need to obey the voice of God. You need to obey the voice of God. When God says to you through His Spirit, hey, you need to do this, you need to do it. And if you don't, you're going to develop a hard heart. And that's going to put you in a losing position when that time of temptation comes. The plea of God's Spirit. Let's move on here. Number two, notice the provocation of the Israelites, the provocation of the Israelites. Look back at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 8. It says, Harden not your heart as in the provocation. Now, what does that word provocation mean? The word provocation comes from the root word to provoke or to irritate or to make angry. How many of you here are married? Raise your hand if you're married, please. Then you know what it means to be provoked. Rose says, I, I, you know, uh, I have no idea what that means. So my husband's perfect. Um, right. OK. Um, yeah, right. Uh, he's a deacon. I know better. Um, how many of you have a brother or sister? Then you really know what it means to be provoked. My mom used to put me in charge of six other children at home. And I'm only 17 months older than my little brother. Now my taller, bigger brother. Um, he and I got in more fistfights, so mom and dad were away, because he would provoke me. Oh, he would provoke me. Well, what is it talking about here? Does God do the provoking? No, our sin nature within us provokes us to do wrong. We're put into a spot where we're going to choose between doing right by faith or wrong through our own wisdom and our flesh provokes us to turn our back on God. In that day of provocation, how will we respond? Let me give you an A, B, and a C here. Notice, speaking of the Israelites, their doubt. Their doubt. Now, 
we're going to be given an illustration of the Israelites when they were walked up to the edge of the wilderness and given a chance to go into their promised land. And that moment of provocation where their flesh was battling against the spirit and their flesh provoked them to sin, they chose to sin and they failed. Why did they fail? Because of their doubt. Their doubt. You, you, so I'll just quickly, we'll turn over to Numbers 13. Numbers chapter 13, verse 30. And while you're turning there, I'll just quickly here recap the story. There were 12 Israeli tribes for the 12 children of Jacob. Later's name turned to Israel. And there's a, a, a couple of million of them now marching through the desert. And here they are. Uh, they come right up. They leave Egypt. They come all the way up to a, a city called Kadesh Barnea. They're getting ready to go into their promised land. They've only been in the desert for a short time. The walk would have been equivalent from a walk from Detroit to Chicago. Or Chicago to Detroit. Not a very far walk uh, in considering that they were there for 40 years. But they make it there. They're on the edge. They're getting ready to go in. And they send 12 spies in. And they come back after after some time, and they're carrying uh, uh, grapes on two sticks. They've got jars and jugs of honey and milk. And uh, they've got pomegranates that are gigantic. And they're getting ready, and the people are getting excited. And, and, and here they are, this big meeting. They've all gathered, and you have ten of the leaders get up on one rock, and they're looking down, getting ready to talk. And you've got Caleb and Joseph and Moses on another rock, and they're looking down, getting ready to talk. And so you have the twelve leaders plus Moses... And they're all gathered, and they're all going to stand and speak. Look at Numbers chapter 13, and look at verse number 30. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land, which they had searched uh, unto the children of, of Israel, saying, uh, the land uh, through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of a great stature. And there we saw the giants, the son of Anak, which come of the giants, and we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, so we were in their own sight. I'd say there's a little bit of an exaggeration going on here, but they said, we saw the sons of Anak, and they're so tall that you look down at that little grasshopper that doesn't even come up above the sole of your shoe, and that's how tall we are in comparison to those giants. They would have had to have been like 200 feet tall for that to be true. A little bit of a hyperbole going on here. A little bit of an exaggeration going on here. And the people wring their hands and say, oh, we can't do it. We can't go in. Caleb and Joseph, or Caleb and Joshua and Moses over on the rock saying, we can't do it, but God can. And He's just looking to use us. And the other ten saying, oh, we can't do it. And the Israelites in Numbers 14 weep and they cry and they say, We're, we can't do it. We're not going in. They doubted. Christian, you have that sin in your life? You have that struggle in your life? You have that task that God has been asking you to do. And you're like, man, I just don't know. Maybe it's a financial commitment He wants you to make. Maybe it's a uh, an Abraham type thing and God's telling you to get up and go somewhere. 
Maybe to the mission field. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's something as simple as handing out a gospel track while you're going through the drive-thru at McDonald's or the person on the other side of the pump at the gas station. But for you, that's terrifying. And you're going, I, I, I just don't know. That day of provocation where your flesh bows up and says, you can't do that. You may not be able, but God is able. But God is able. You gotta choose, are you going to doubt? Are you going to doubt? They tempted God. God put them to the test, and they tempted God. Everybody's attention up here, please. Let her be notice their denial. Their denial. Go back to, um, go back to Hebrews 3 with me. It says there, when your fathers tempted me, Proved me. Now, when I say their denial, I don't mean that they were in denial. I mean they were denied. They were denied. You know what happened? They said, no, we can't do it. And they cried. And God lost it. You go back and read Numbers 14. And like the first 25 or 30 verses of Numbers 14, God is like, I'm going to obliterate them off the planet! I'm going to kill them all! I mean, God is hot under the collar. He is furious. And Moses has to go and say, God, no, please don't kill him. What will the Egyptians say? Don't do it! Oh, God said, how dare they? They watched me part the Red Sea and send water out of the rock and drop man out of heaven and put clouds over them to keep them uh, uh, warm at night and cool during the day. They watched me do all of these miracles and then they come up here and they go, oh, we can't do it. God said, I just want to kill them all. And Moses goes and says, God, you can't kill them. You can't kill them because you're going to give your enemies a great reason to mock. And Moses and God says, okay, I won't kill them. But they're not going into that promised land. Anybody over the age of 20, they're going to wander around the wilderness and they're going to die. Numbers 14, 26. I lost my place in Numbers. i got to turn back. Numbers 14, verse 26. Look there. I tell you what, I'm going to do something a little out of the ordinary tonight. Who wants to read Numbers 14, 26 through 30? I have a man here tonight that wants to do that. Jason, use your man voice so everybody can hear you. So they, their denial, they were completely locked out of the land. And you keep reading down in the chapter, and what did they want to do? They came back and said, oh, we're sorry, we changed our mind, let us go back in there. Now we're willing to try. And Moses said, look, you can go up there and get an army together and try, you're going to get your, you're going to get your heinies handed to you. I'm trying to find a nice way to put it. And they did. They tried. And they were killed in great number. Because without God's help, they were never going to do it. But if they had just trusted God in that day of temptation, they would have won. 
Hey, with God on your team, you cannot lose. Now, we understand that looking back in history, but how about for you, my friend? How about for you in that day of temptation? That sin you just can't overcome? God can give you the victory. That, uh, that duty God's calling you to do, that you're intimidated by. Listen, don't walk up to the edge of great Christian success and lose out because you're doubting uh, uh, on God. Let her see, notice, their death. Their death. Now go back with me, hold your place in Numbers. Go back with me to Hebrews 3 and look at uh, uh, verse number, uh, number, number 10. Wherefore I was grieved that generation and said, I'm sorry, uh, up a verse there. Uh, verse 9, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works 40 years. What were those works? Well, that was, the works were watching their, their peers die one at a time as they wandered through the wilderness. And those under the age of 20 coming to age and being prepared to go in and get it. Turn back over to Numbers 14, verse number 32. We're going to read down through verse number 37. Brother Russo, you can read 32 37 for me? Down through 37. So these men who had gotten up and said, we can't do it because we're grasshoppers in their sight, they just dropped dead of a plague in front of everybody. But the rest of them had to wander around the wilderness for 40 years, and they had to die because they, they doubted God's ability. And what did it do? It tempted God. It put God in a, in a day of his own provocation where he was provoked to destroy them because of their sin. Now, we know that God cannot sin, and he did not sin. Uh, but uh, but that's what happens. Now, this can happen to each of us. And next week, I'm going to drive home how this applies to each Christian. There are Christians today that are walking around in a barren, emotional wilderness, and they're broken. And they can't find their way out of the wilderness of a broken, emotional state. And they turn to everybody but God for that answer. Let me just show you something to give you a highlight of next week. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll meld point three into next week's message. We'll uh, say, so uh, we'll, we'll cover that next week. Let me just show you a little something here. Look at verse eleven. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. What was the Canaan land compared to for us today? Rest. You show me someone who can't get rest emotionally, 
I'll show you someone who has not come to the Lord for it. Now, I've had people say to me, Pastor, you take an extreme stance on that. And I say back to them, Jesus promised to give rest to those that labor. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. He didn't say, and I might give you rest. He said, I will give you rest. Turn over to chapter number 4. Turn to chapter number 4 and look at verse number 1. Let us therefore fear, lest the promise being left us of entering into his rest. Now, this is speaking to you and I today. Any of you should seem to come short of it. So it is possible for Christians to fall short of entering into God's rest. Look down at verse number 12, or rather verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. What happens when a Christian chooses not to trust and walk by faith? He sets himself up to be tormented by a lack of rest, physically and emotionally. Then verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even, look at, look how precise this verse is, to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, those are emotional disorders, and of the joint and marrow, those are physical disorders, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, those are spiritual disorders. The Word of God has the power to fix a person who cannot rest. No matter how it is, they cannot rest. But we must quit turning to secular psychologists and modern-day medicine and turn to the promises of God's Word and let it do what it says it will do. We'll dive more into that next week. But again, we're given an Old Testament example, and then the author, God, in Hebrews, is going to bring that home to the Christian who lives today. So come back next week, and uh, over the next few weeks, we'll be in... Hebrews 3 and 4. I hope you get a lot out of that as we move, march forward. All right, let's stand together to be dismissed with prayer. Hope you have a little bit better understanding of Hebrews chapter 3 this evening than you did before you walked in the door. And you'll go home and study even more. All right. Let's be dismissed with prayer and ask God's hand a blessing on the rest of the week. And ask God to uh, be with us in a powerful way. Brother Jacob Okai, our wonderful, godly, almost perfect deacon. Would you close... Would you close us in <laughs> Would you close us in prayer please? Thank you. <laughs>